This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in media matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Zintner. In this episode, we're launching what's going to be a multi-episode series about public media and really the media business behind public media. This will involve some interviews and other such conversations. But first, Amanda and I wanted to sit down and actually establish what it is we're talking about. So Amanda, let's begin with kind of the question I just proposed there. When we mention public media, what are we talking about? Typically, we're talking about media that's funded not by commercial sources, but by the public in some way. And every country that works a little bit differently. But I think the key thing here is that we expect public media to take on a different character because its goals are different. So there's been, let's say, a lot of discussion in the last year or so about something called the quote-unquote mainstream media. That's not a distinction that's really all that meaningful in any way. Uh, Except to people who want to criticize something. And even then, their criticisms don't have meaning. Right. Whether or not media is, again, quote-unquote mainstream, you know, that's not a shared definition of, of what creates that. However, what we can talk meaningfully about is the difference between commercial media In other words, media that exists to make a profit, which is most of what most Americans consume. And there is public media, which is a smaller segment of what Americans consume. It is a not-for-profit enterprise, and it has very different aims and, as a result, very different measures of success. So when it comes to the U.S. and our home market specifically, we're talking really about two major entities here. We're talking about public radio and public television. Now, within public television, the big entity here is PBS, the public broadcasting system. And in radio, there's a whole bunch of players that kind of make up what public radio is. But the main entity we're talking about here is NPR, National Public Radio. Even within television, uh, there, the or we might think of PBS as a kind of like a network like NBC, but in truth, there's something very different happening in the way that different stations around the country are PBS stations and they work together in a way that's different from the way that you have different NBC affiliates around the country that together also form a network. Well, it's less centralized is what we're talking about. Um, A PBS affiliate is really an affiliate that makes stuff for PBS instead of an affiliate that airs what PBS tells them to, to a a certain extent. No, absolutely. No. No. And so, I mean, it often is raised as one of the uh, weaknesses of, of, of our public media system, but it's by design to be community-based. Whereas if you think of something like NBC, what's happening there is you have NBC network doing the buying of programming and then sending it out to affiliates across the country. And that's basically done with the goal of gathering the most eyeballs so that you have the most eyeballs to sell to advertisers. And you actually have at the affiliate level very little agency or choice outside of the hours that the network doesn't provide programming. Which is usually uh, during daytime hours and late night after Some chunks of day, daytime, right. I mean, the morning news shows that come from the different networks, uh, Fox provides less than the other channels. So there, there is variation there in, in the, the amount of content that a commercial network provides. But in the case of PBS, 
the stations function independently. They're, they can put on whatever they want. Whenever they want. There's a reason why PBS, when they advertise a show, say check your local listings. It's because your PBS affiliate might air something differently from what I guess PBS would consider its general schedule, its ideal schedule. And so what happens in the way those that programming comes to be is typically that different stations around the country, uh, often it's the ones in larger metropolitan areas that are better funded and have more uh, programming infrastructure, they create programs often focused on their market, but over time, you know, other places see, hey, that's a good show. So for a long time, I lived in Austin, Texas, and that's the home of Austin City Limits, right? A music show based in the Austin music community, but they have performers that people around the country like to see. And so what happens is that each member station pays the originating station, so in that case it's KUT, a fee for the program to be able to air it on its local broadcast. And so that's why you do actually end up with considerable similarity in different PBS and NPR schedules, uh, because basically they're all drawing from the same pool of programming, but they're drawing and, and making choices based on what is preferred in their community or maybe what their community needs in particular. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you even, In public radio, that's why um, in front of NPR shows, you'll hear like on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from WBEZ in Chicago or um, WNYC actually. That's a little bit of a different case because they actually do self-distribute a lot of their content now through an entity called WNYC Studios. And so the key thing that we're talking about here, or what again makes public media different, is its funding structure. And so here, another crucial difference is the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is the entity that receives most of the money that then goes to fund the local stations and uh, much of the programming. So the CPB, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, was set up by Congress, and I'm going to read here just verbatim because I think it's important to understand the nature and the missions of these organizations. So for the Corporation of Public Broadcasting, their mission statement is, the purpose of public media is to provide programs and services that inform, educate, enlighten, and enrich the public and help inform civil discourse essential to American society. It is CPB's particular responsibility to encourage the development of content that involves creative risk and that addresses the needs of unserved and underserved audiences, especially children and minorities. So that's a mission that developed very specifically in response to the commercial system that dominated. The U.S. is unlike um, most similar countries around the world where when broadcasting first developed everywhere else, the first move was toward public media. Whereas mm -hmm. back when radio was launched here in the States, we launched in initially with a commercial system. And it's and not in television as well. And right. And it's not until much, much later that actually any kind of public media was added to the U.S. system. I mean, that's 1970. Right. Is the date of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting had been founded. By that point, TV and radio were established industries. And at that point, radio had already risen and was starting to kind of fall a little bit by that point. There had been, I mean, so it's not, there were news radio stations, as there still are. Mm -hmm. There was a mismatch of educational television and radio entities out there, but there wasn't really anything that was coordinating them. And there wasn't really anything with the mandate that, like, this has. That's really, I think, the most important part, um, a word that's used in Amanda's uh, media industry class, mandate. 
Their job isn't to make money. Their job is to enrich the public and help inform civil discourse essential to American society. That's really a big separator between public media and everything else on the market. Right. And and to go back to that distinction I was calling earlier, you know, something like this notion that there's a uniform mainstream media, which there isn't. Um, but what does unite most media from everything from CNN to Alex Jones Infowars is that it is commercial. It exists to make money. Is Alex Jones media media? <laughs> it is. It is commercial media and we need to acknowledge and understand it exactly that way. It exists to make money, which is why he has a variety of supplements on his website. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's how that service funds itself. So the question that we need to ask on, on the business side of, of something like public media um, is to understand that commercial media, the business of media, does not necessarily um, and regularly provide information, education, enlightenment. Instead, what tends to happen with commercial media is that it gives us a diet of what we want, maybe not what we need. Um, and when we say we, Historically, it's been a very particular we. It's the we that is made up of those people that advertisers want to reach. And so commercial media are inherently non-democratic in the sense that commercial media do not treat everyone the same. They do not prioritize and value everyone the same. They prefer those people who advertisers want to reach. And as a result, let's say by 1970, we had a media system that clearly was creating content for not all of society. Um, it's why I think if you look today at our news media in the United States on television um, versus what you see on uh, the public systems elsewhere in the world, you, you see very different coverage. And again, that's because the way that commercial media succeeds is by getting the most viewers. And you get the most viewers, as, as I, I've said in class before, you get far more viewers with Skittles than with broccoli. Uh, and so in many ways... So are you saying public media exists to give us broccoli? It, it, it kind of is. And, you know, we also have to acknowledge how we feel when we eat a diet of Skittles versus broccoli, right? That it is, it doesn't necessarily succeed by having the most people watching, but it succeeds when it provides content that fulfills these needs, often mm -hmm. the absences uh, that develop it with commercial media. Yeah, if you look at what PBS is programming, it's programming a lot of documentaries. It's programming a lot of informational content. It does have Masterpiece, which kind of is its cornerstone drama delivery service, the home of uh, Downton Abbey and Sherlock, among other things. But it's programming a lot of like it, Nova, Nature, shows that are meant to inform the public. And that's not even getting into PBS Kids, which is a whole separate kind of entity that is crucial to PBS's mission and PBS's longevity. Absolutely, and I think we should talk about that and sort of the role that programming developed for kids by PBS often has uh, any number of educational consultants behind it, and mm -hmm. it's developed um, in order to enrich children, uh, certainly not with the expectation that children should be spending hours and hours with television, but the reality is is that sometimes children do spend yep. time watching television, and we want to think about the value that provides in society, especially in situations where educational opportunities are lacking, and, and that actually that the programming that PBS provides is very important to many communities. 
Yeah, I did a story on this uh, this past April. I actually did a story on kind of looking into the question of what what is the value of PBS Kids programming and where does that really come from? And so I got to talk to a couple of people who make PBS Kids programming and distri- and kind of work with it, what PBS Kids provides in our local metro Detroit area. And listening to them kind of talk about what they do to make a show educationally valuable, what they do to kind of help not only make the program valuable, but on Detroit Public Television, putting on little inner styles that, like, maybe might help a parent learn something or something along those lines. There's lots of little pieces of value behind that. And another key thing that many parents uh, with children who watch PBS are familiar with is, again, the fact that it's a space that you can let your children exist and know that they are not going to be bombarded by commercial messages. Mm-hmm. And so that, too, is is an advantage behind not just the programming that is developed with different goals in mind, but also you know, when you have children who aren't yet savvy media consumers and don't necessarily understand the nature of commercial messaging and you want to try to keep them in a space where they are encountering fewer messages mm-hmm. that they don't yet have the skills to deconstruct, uh, PBS is an important safe place in that way. Yeah, and even um, the type of programming that's airing. Like, when we think of generalized children's programming, it's what, Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, Disney, producing three other, the major, the three major commercial entities. And PBS Kids programming is really very different Mm -hmm. from those in terms of goals, in terms of, like, the characters at play. I mean, there's a reason why Sesame Street is running on 50 years So the funding of the Corporation of Public Broadcasting for public broadcasting has been in the news uh, in relation to the new Trump agenda uh, or the the proposed Trump budget. And, you know, even without that, I think it's a valuable topic for our podcast to stop and talk about how public media are funded in the United States. Absolutely. Uh, so not only did public media in the States develop later, but uh, really is is far more poorly financed, even under normal conditions. So we'll, we'll bracket the Trump budget for now, and let's just talk about sort of how public broadcasting works right now. And the current appropriation, right. which is $445 million, is what the Corporation for Public Broadcasting gets from the federal budget. Right, and so that's the money that, again, is going to the different PBS stations to a degree. Um, it's helping support funding. Like So the, the different stations compete basically on kind of a grant system often to get uh, that money to support programming. But if you, 445 million probably sounds like a lot of money, but if, if we break it down, the U.S. annual funding per capita for public media is- So a, funding per person. Right. Is a dollar 49 cents. Not even uh, a cup of coffee as, as, <laughs> as, as it goes. That number becomes really stark when you start looking around the rest of the world. So in the U.K., the annual funding per person is closer to $83. Now, the UK also pays for public television in a slightly different way, right? Yes. So the system has been structured as there's a a license per fee per set, um, which, again, at the end of the day, a tax is collected. That money that comes in goes to an entity. So Mm -hmm. it is earmarked a little more particularly than um, just in terms of a, a general income tax. But yes, so the UK budget has always been based on that uh, license fee. Very comparable to the case in the UK, Germany, their annual funding per person is at $85. Um, Again, and again, similarly, that 
money comes in through a mandatory license fee on television receivers. In other words, the fact that you have a television set means that you should pay for this. Mm -hmm. Um, In Canada, it's a little bit lower. Uh, They pay $28 per head, which is the same amount that Australia pays. But those numbers still pale in comparison to the 149. Very much so. And so, I mean, so the next question is, where does the money come from in the United States? Because a dollar forty-nine or times our population actually doesn't go that far. And so, I think in in some ways, we can really ask the question whether we have public media in the United States, um, because so much of that budget has to come from other places. So one result of having such a poorly funded public media system is that ours is much smaller um, mm-hmm. than other countries. So for the most part, we think of, you know, it's there's one PBS system. You might have one PBS station in your area. Um, mm-hmm. And so and it, it's pretty widespread around the country, but there's really very few markets where there's more than one. I know New York has three. But. Right. And so in that situation, then you do have an opportunity for those public stations to be doing different things. Mm -hmm. And just to contrast that with, let's say, those other places in the world that are spending much more, you have your public system, you know, targeting different audiences Mm -hmm. um, and able to provide more and diverse programming uh, as a result. Here in Ann Arbor, we just finished the pledge drive uh, for the public (laughs) radio station. Um, So, Listeners and viewers in the States are probably familiar with the call. We're funded Mm -hmm. by viewers like you or listeners like you. And indeed, very much um, in the case of the general expenses for public radio, 37% comes from individual contributions. And that's kind of a result of public media having to go and find other sources of financing besides the government in order to exist and do what they do. A generalized kind of public radio station Only 9% of their funding will come from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and only 5% comes from other federal, state, and local grants. Right. And so as a result, these holes in the budget need filled. Um, One reason why I think we can query whether the United States public media is really all that public is the heavy degree to which stations have come to depend not just on listeners, uh, but on different corporations and sponsors. And so it is the case that if you're watching a show or you're listening to a, a, a radio show... Or even a podcast. Almost always it starts out with a... It's a I think it's a, it's a very difficult to not call it a commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a sponsored message. It might be slightly different in character than the nature of a commercial. Although but sometimes they do look and sound basic. They're basically commercials. They're just commercials made for public media instead right. of the mass audience. And so they're brand messages. And so the fact that that is, you know, you can't, at this point, the public media system would not survive without that messaging. And so, you know, that's where I, I push on whether it, it really is uh, a true public system, given all that commercial funding that is a part of the system. Yeah, and uh, let's talk about NPR's funding specifically for a second. 14% comes from grants and contributions, but their biggest source of income, 39%, comes from station fees. So that station's paying NPR for the content that NPR is distributing to other public radio stations. Right, or that you're paying to a di- you're paying to Minnesota Public Radio, let's say, for a mm-hmm. Prairie Home Companion. And, and again, that sort of trading of, of money for different programs. So those are some of the key ways that 
public media in the United States is funded. And so it's in, in that regard that we then have to uh, recognize that the Trump budget has, at this point, absolutely no funding allocated for the Corporation for Public They're Broadcasting. They're cutting that completely from their budget. I think if we're going to consider, you know, what are the ramifications, what will continue to exist and what won't, um, probably the places likely to be hit the hardest are rural areas, smaller stations that do rely more heavily on federal funding yeah, because it, that's the funding that's going away. It's local stations that will be hit the most. That's what multiple kind of interviews, reports have said, is that these local stations will lose very key sources of funding to the point where they might not be able to remain open and right. available for their citizens. Right. And again, and that's where issues like economies of scale come to play. And so those stations in places with fewer possible listeners, viewers willing to donate, willing to step up and, and cover that difference in the budget, those are the stations that are likely to be in, in the worst situation. And so um, the metropolitan uh, services may be able to, you know, somewhere again like New York, where you've got three, consolidate, work it out, and, and mm -hmm. continue to exist. But unfortunately, um, it's probably um, the large area in the rural Midwest that's likely to see the most uh, effect of, of that budget if it does come to be. So why should we spend some time on public media in a, on, a on a podcast that is focused on media business matters? It's different. Right? Is, that's kind of what you you want to get at here, is it's different from everything else. Right. And I think just as we've looked at the implications for media that have resulted from digitization for different industry sectors, I think it's also a question and it's an issue very much facing public media as well. Um, some have argued that we don't need public media anymore in an era of of, of digital distribution where anybody can make their own podcast as, as we're doing. Anyone can make their own television show, upload it to YouTube, and you know, why do we need uh, any kind of, of funded public media in an environment of, of digital media? And I think that's, that's um, short-sighted, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think the other side of, of what we've seen as well this podcast probably doesn't quite compete with what uh, some of the professionals are doing, right? Um, and and it, it could be so much more were Alex and I uh, not doing this in our spare time as opposed to as a central part of our jobs. Just because the access to distribution has changed as a result of, of digital distribution doesn't mean that those core issues related to the holes that public media uh, was developed to fill, those have not gone away. If public media wasn't there, they there would still be educational holes. There would still be documentaries that might not be seen. You know, Ken Burns, not many networks would go and fund, for example, a 10-part documentary on the Vietnam War by Ken Burns. Right. And I think, you know, some of these arguments came around as cable became prevalent in, in the media market as well, and sort of the argument being, why do we need to have um, public funding of documentaries? We've got the History Channel, or we've got the Science Channel. Mm -hmm. um, but I th again, I think the, the need is to step back, and topically, indeed, history might be presenting some form of history, but it's still... But now it's presenting Pawn Stars. <laughs> there's that, but there's also the fact that 
it's history for a, with a commercial mission, right? Mm -hmm. And so as a result, certain histories are going to be prioritized. Histories that more people are likely to watch are histories that whatever demographic um, advertisers who are spending money advertising on history, what they want to watch. So you don't, even though topically now we have services that are pushing in toward some of the areas that historically have been the programming areas that public media have focused on, they're not doing it in the same way. They're, they're very, they're much more, I guess, to use more qualitative terms here, they're much more dramatic. They're much more flary. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that really the issue is is topic um, mm -hmm. and, and how the topics are treated. And so in another place that uh, we're having this discussion less in the U.S., but it's been more of a debate in the U.K., where you have the BBC isn't just a service that's the British Broadcasting Corporation, mm -hmm. their public media system. In that context, BBC not only is important in terms of news and information, but historically the BBC has also been the creator of very high-level entertainment programming and dramas. Doctor Who, and <laughs> big example of that. That's probably their most famous creation. There's also more recent examples. The Great British Bake Off, Great British Baking sure. Show here. Uh, the show that became, uh, it was The Office There and The Office Here mm -hmm. also um, emerged out of uh, a public system. So um, this is one of those places where our meagerly funded system, you know, we, when we think public media in the U.S., we think Sesame Street and Nova, and yeah. we don't think that uh, our favorite drama could possibly come from PBS because it's very, been so rare. They very rarely delved into it. They d they've done a couple of experiments in the post-Outen Abbey era with producing their own drama, but they still mostly acquire. Right, and again, I think we have to look at that as an issue of they just don't have the budget yep. in order to do that. I remember PBS's CEO at one, or CEO, ex the executive in charge at PBS saying they're production budget is less than Game of Thrones marketing budget. <laughs> that sounds about right. Anyway, the issue that's, you know, being discussed in, in Britain is, is, is along the lines of, well, do we need to continue to fund the BBC? Because now we have, you know, Netflix is creating quality programming that, you know, historically only came from the BBC. And again, you know, it might be that entities like Netflix and HBO, because they are subscriber funded and they need to provide programming of such value that people are willing to pay for it, their strategy might be looking like a public one. But again, those are commercial services. They are only developing content for particular audiences. So they, even though there might be more quality, top rate, sophisticated drama and comedy in the entertainment space, that that doesn't mean that there isn't a need for a publicly focused creator of that kind of content as well. It might be that you know, funders want to step back and sort of look at what groups are still being unserved and underserved, and maybe some of that calculus has changed, and maybe there's a, a value in putting effort in different places. But in no way are the current commercial services replacing public media. No, absolutely not. One of the things that we've hinted at, but let's actually put in explicit terms here, is how success is measured at public media. Now, in commercial media, it's making money. But in public media, how they determine success is a little bit different, no? 
Right, and I, it's actually I think that can be one of the challenges. I mean, so how do we actually, it's, it's not even making money that we pay the most attention to. Often we pay attention to how big of an audience did mm-hmm. something draw. And then we know that from that, the bigger the audience, the more money an advertiser is paying to reach that large audience. The mindset in the U.S. especially is very much this connection between most viewers being the best. Um, That's a really hard mindset to break out of. But for public media, success is valued differently. It's not necessarily, no, it's not about having the most viewers. Like, they're not playing that game. No, they're not. Not in the slightest. No. Um, And so, again, that's another place where people raise, you know, like, well, only two million people were watching NPR last night. Clearly, it's not, you know, it's watching not... Watching NPR? I'm sorry. <laughs> Only 2 million people were watching PBS last night. Clearly, it's not that important. You know, it's a smaller audience than was watching NBC. Probably we don't need it. No, not at all. That's it, not how it works. Right. It's, it is not trying to have everyone watch it. It's trying to provide programming that's unlike, that's different from that programming that's being designed to draw in the largest audience. Mm-hmm. What other challenges that we kind of, we've addressed a lot of the funding challenges that are facing uh, PBS. What other challenges are public media facing? I, I would, again, hit on this concern about the degree to which uh, the U.S. system is increasingly infiltrated with advertising through sponsorship. And, 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 you know, why that becomes a concern is when you have situations where a public media news show feels like it has to pull its punches uh, because the story that it's covering um, might upset one of its funders. So, and that's what a thing that commercial media, fa- and commercial news especially, faces all the time. Right. Do we publish this story that is critical of a key advertiser? And so here in, in, in Michigan, um, Michigan Public Radio has been covering, there's ongoing debate about an oil pipeline that's owned by a company called Enbridge. Um, and there's a significant amount of debate in the in Michigan about whether or not um, it's safe um, and whether or not the threat of a leak in the Great Lakes is just too great. You know, sort of every time, you know, this is news, Michigan Radio has to cover it, and every time then they have to say, and Enbridge is a sponsor of our programs. I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that NPR is pulling its its punches, but no, once NPR you start... No, NPR might actually, by putting that disclosure in, they're probably saying, we're not hiding our punches here, but we still need to tell our audience this. Right, but at the same time, if Enbridge, and I, I'm not saying this is the case, but if Enbridge is the largest funder, then that be, and you need to have that funding, then all of a sudden that creates you know, a pressure on a newsroom that, that's again, is exactly why we have public media as opposed to commercial news media. I mean, because a lot of the critique of what gets called mainstream media and the news that's being provided there, we all have to remember that CNN is a commercial enterprise. Fox Fox News, a commercial enterprise. They are not driven to inform you, to educate you. What, you're saying they're not trying to be fair and balanced? The point is that they are trying to have people watch. And yeah. so that 
drive, you know, correlates directly into what we see. And now, why do you the... see hours and hours, let's say, of sensational hurricane coverage of reporters being blown around by a storm? Because people watch it, and I'm not saying you shouldn't, it's fantastic, but are you actually learning anything? Um, watching rainfall in Florida, as opposed to actually having a news team on the ground in the islands that have already been hit and mm -hmm. seeing the kind of devastation that exists. If not 100%, then the majority of Puerto Rico is still without power. And, and that's, you know, not something that's making our news. Why? Because it's more in the broccoli than the Skittles category, mm -hmm. right? General, you know, sort of lack of literacy in the United States around these issues and recognizing that commercial media are not driven to inform. And, and that's exactly why public radio is and, and television continue to be so important. I think also there's, I mean, it's, it's hard to talk about the potential and the opportunity when the system is already so poorly funded. But in many ways, digitization is a great thing for public media. I mean, think about it this way for a second. So in most cases, sort of public media is to is sort of driven to do two things. One, they're sort of meant to serve the citizenry in its entirety, and everybody at this point lives in diverse countries, and it's supposed to somehow bring the country together. Like, those are sort of two things that are really hard to do, especially if you only have 24 hours of programming a day to, <laughs> in which to serve that diverse citizenry. And so the fact that digital media allow us different ways to distribute, on-demand ways, right? So like maybe you don't feel like PBS is doing anything for you, but maybe there is actually one show on PBS that actually mm -hmm. you know is, is aimed to service your, your demographic or your interests. Everybody um, as a child, for example. Well, there's the children, that's a pretty big sector, but like it's not that PBS isn't serving you, but maybe you don't recognize that it happens to be on Friday at nine o'clock, mm -hmm. right? And so in order to be served by the programming meant for you, you have to be in the audience Friday at nine o'clock. And digital distribution gives us a way around that. Mm -hmm. um, so in many ways, the US system could be made far more useful if PBS um, and had more funds available to develop a more robust uh, digital distribution infrastructure. I mean, that said, PBS.org does make its programs available. Yep. They have games for children. Um, often they have all sorts of teaching uh, materials on the website along mm -hmm. to go with the programming. And so they're, I'm not saying they're not doing a lot. They are doing as much as they can with their budgets. Um, but I think the if we look at, let's say, the UK, the UK had a service called the iPlayer, which was yep. basically an on-demand service. It was in the market in the UK in 2007, which is a good three years before Netflix seriously became a thing in the United States. Yeah, that's about when ABC started putting its programming online for the but first time. But it wasn't, time. yeah, but it, and ABC was only putting it online on iTunes where you had to buy it. Oh, was right? it, wasn't ABC streaming at that point with their shows with ads? Very rarely did you end up with the full content. There were sometimes, but for the most part, like here in the States, because of the commercial system, um, the studios were so afraid of losing control of their content that we were far behind uh, the public system in the UK in terms of embracing digital distribution, I mean, precisely because of those commercial versus public concerns. If you're a public media system, you know, 
you don't care about the, you're not focused on making sure you maintain the value of your show so that you get the highest rate in syndication. You've made programs for your people. You want to help them see it. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've seen much more aggressive embrace of digital technologies in public service systems than we've seen here. Well, let's talk about NP NPR and public radio for a second, because po podcasting boom has yeah. been a really big thing for public radio in terms of getting their programming distributed. Pretty much every public radio program now is available as a podcast in some way, shape, or form. So you can go and listen to it on something like Apple Podcasts. You can go and find all the NPR shows, all the WNYC Studios shows. That's a, kind of another example of public radio embracing what really is a very easy to use digital distribution system. Right. I mean, we I mean, use it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, really what you see, what is happening there, it's it's sort of the equivalent of the DVR for radio, mm -hmm. right? It's that ability to time shift and, and to not have to be in the audience at a certain time yeah. in the way that broadcasting historically forced us to. So we're going to uh, hopefully bring some people into the studio who are working in uh, various facets in public media and to ask them questions such as what are the biggest issues facing their organization mm -hmm. and how, you know, the changes that they've seen over the course of their career in order to better understand uh, and appreciate the challenges facing public media today. We very much look forward to bringing you those interviews over the next few weeks. But now, it's time for the last segment of each and every show, What We're Watching This Week. Amanda, what are you watching? I am very slowly, it seems, working my way through the final season of Orphan Black. Mm -hmm. I just finished it this week myself. And how about you, Alex? What are you watching? I am watching a couple of things on Netflix. Uh, first thing I want to mention, BoJack Horseman, returning through its fourth season, which is just excellent. BoJack Horseman has always been so much better than it has any right to be. Not only is it a hilarious, biting satire of Hollywood, it's also this really powerful, emotionally wrought, just fantastically written show. And I really feel for all these characters. And you know what? This season ended on such a moment of hope and optimism. It's rare for Bojack to be yeah, optimistic, but you know what? They pulled it off. All right. Also, I want to mention American Vandal. This brief eight-episode mockumentary dropped on Netflix last week and is just starting to kind of get some buzz around it. It's a mockumentary making fun of things like serial and other true crime <laughs> sort of things about what happens when a bunch of uh, male phallic images are spray-painted on teachers' cars in a high school parking lot. Oh, I can't imagine that ever so happening. So the high school AV club puts together a documentary oh. about what happened, who the main suspects are, and not only is it hilarious, but it, it I don't know, it, it kind of plays like true crime while also just being like hilariously funny and crass, crude, rude, because obviously it's about obviously. what it's about. But it's very funny, and I highly recommend the show. Great. And that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, you can go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. If you want to subscribe to us and have new episodes available in your feed as soon as they're available, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store. And if you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. It will help new listeners find the show. Amanda, where can we find you on Twitter? 
at Dr. TV Lots. That's D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Intner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back soon.